Uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians 4. Uh, we're going to be looking particularly at verses 7 through 10. But I want to ask if you are able to finish this phrase. We've been talking about it for some weeks now, but I want to see if you guys are able to do it. And it starts off with, with this, and then you're going to finish it for me, okay? And it's this, a changed heart by God will bring... Okay, so some of you got that right. It's a changed heart by God will bring... A changed life for God. Good. Okay, good. Good. There. Okay. That's better. Yeah, when I heard the boom, I'm like, oh, it's going to be like Bolt when he does the speak and and everything explodes. Yeah. No, thank you. So a changed heart by God will bring a changed life for God. And I want to remind us of that today because what we've been looking at in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, is that a changed life actually brings unity. And so the focus of the first six verses of chapter 4 have been on unity. If you remember, we looked at the fact that God eager, God, God would give us this eagerness to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then as Todd spoke on, he said there's one body, there's one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the massive focus of the first six verses is on unity. But now we're going to look at a section in 7 through 16 over the next three weeks where it's highly talking about the diversity that exists within that unity. And we have to understand that the purpose of God is that 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 diversity doesn't diminish the unity at all. In fact, it is the very basis by which this unity is appreciated It's the very basis by which this unity is seen, and it's something that is so marvelous that the world will look at it and say, wow, God must be among those people. But it is purposeful diversity that we have. And we're going to be looking at giftings that God has given us. And these gifts that we're going to read about are used to equip the church with the power to work together and advance the kingdom of God on earth. And that is the goal of every believer. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been equipped with a gift, certain power that exists to you, and we're to use it to work together and advance the kingdom of God here on earth. So with that in mind, read with me verses 7 through 16. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow, so it builds itself up in love. So the first thing we see, and we're only going to be looking at today, verses 7 through 10. But the first thing we see is that every single one of us has been given grace. If you notice, it says in verse 7, grace was given to each one of us. I love that because now he talks about this transition. He uses the term, but grace. I've talked about unity. I've talked about all the things that you have together. Here they are. But then he says, but there is grace that is given to each one of you. So one was used to show unity. Now he says each one of you individually has been given grace. And the word grace there is the word charis. It's where we get our word in other places, charismata or charisma. And they're spiritual gifts, grace gifts. But here he just has it, charis, grace. But what he's talking about is your spiritual gift. And so he's talking about this in terms of diversity, each one of you. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no person who can say that you have not been gifted. Yes, we have been gifted with the Spirit of God. But in particular, if you notice also, he says it's each according to the measure of Christ's gift. So all of us have the Spirit equally. When we are saved, the Spirit comes and resides in us. We've talked about that in Ephesians 1. In fact, that's one of the things that unites us together. One body, one Spirit. The Spirit has been given to all of us. But the way in which the Spirit manifests himself in us is unique for each individual person. And that's where the diversity comes. It's according to the measure of Christ's gift. So one emphasizes the generosity of Christ in giving to all, but then the other one emphasizes the authority of Christ in giving what he will to each individual person. So you've got generosity and authority. And there's no complaining to God over a lack of something that you would desire. To dismiss someone also as unimportant is to, in a sense, rebuke the authority of God and the necessity of the very person that God has gifted with certain things. Again, God has given each one of us a gift, but each one manifests it differently. I love how he ties grace and gift together. Do you see that as a theme in Ephesians? I think back to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 where he says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Think of not only in terms of salvation, but in the sense of our gifting, that none of us can boast that we have one thing and another person does not. I think of the old hymn that says, "'Twas grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home." That's the focus. It's been of grace, and it's always going to be of grace. But I also think of Ephesians 2.10. 
where he finishes the thought of grace being bestowed to us, he says, but we're also God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so God knows exactly who is where. He knows exactly what must be done. And he knows exactly who is going to do these things. I love the fact that it says that we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which he's prepared in advance for us, that we would walk in them. It's a reminder to me that the truth of what God is desiring out of this church, that he has stuff for this church and these people to be a part of, that he's not asking other churches to be a part of. He wants us to do specific things and has given us specific and unique opportunities to do these things. And he's put people in this church specifically for however long we remain together to do certain things. And so each one is gifted with an ability to be a part of that very mission that God has advanced for us. He's already done it in advance that we would do these things. So church, do we appreciate that? Are we mindful of this? But I think of the tension within diversity, don't you? Think of the staff dynamics. Think of Corey. Corey was just up here patting on the keyboard, and he's very good. He takes a normal day and makes it almost ethereal. It's like you walk into the heavens as Corey plays the keyboard. And so when you pray, it's just not the same unless Corey's patting behind you, and then you're like, oh, we're with Jesus, because Corey's playing. That's one of his gifts. I, jokingly, I'm, I'm really good at uh, being spontaneously destructive through the use of my hand in slapping things. If there's a bottle on a table and it's empty, I don't care. I don't know whose it is. It's gone. It's off that table. Why do I do it? I, I have no idea. Um, it's really obnoxious to some of the guys. But it's interesting that uh, Kevin has the spiritual gift of finding my messes and asking me to clean them up. I don't know how he does it, no matter where they are. Kevin's like, <laughs> Charles, remember that? Yeah, you got to clean. Oh, thanks, Kevin. Thanks. Kevin also has the spiritual gift of discernment, but only in regards to trucks. He knows that Fords, Fords are better than Chevys, according to Kevin. If you don't believe that, uh, you can talk to him afterwards. It's his spiritual gift. Todd. I think of Todd. Todd is amazing at keeping his car clean. Amazing. He has the spiritual gift of cleanliness because cleanliness is next to godliness. And we all know this. But Todd, if I try to leave a cup in his car, I've tried this. It hits me in the back of my head as I'm walking away from Todd's car. Boom. Don't leave your cup in my car. Exact opposite is Jasper. Jasper's spiritual gift is messiness. At one time, I kid you not, he had eight unwashed mugs in his car. When do you get to the point where you realize, I don't have anything to pour coffee in? I actually can't drink a cup of coffee today. I need to go to my car and wash these things. You know those guys where you say, uh, hey, can I ride with you? And he goes, yeah, I just need to move some stuff. This is like an hour endeavor for Jasper. Well, I'll just take my own car. It's okay. I think of that in terms of there's usually a tension that we see because God has also meant that we would humbly love one another in the midst of this. And that means we need to value and see the things that might annoy us, but see them as the very giftings and the things that need to be used for the benefit of the body of Christ. To go back to Corey, I think of Corey playing here. And you saw today, we have Corey and we have Eric. Usually we have a larger accompaniment of instruments. Think if Corey was up here and all he wanted to do was play by himself. There would be beauty that comes from him playing. It would be a appreciated by people 
But if he demanded that he stay up here and play just by himself, there would be something missing. There'd be something lacking. There is a greater beauty when people are working together for the same thing, isn't there? It's not to diminish the beauty of what is there, but it actually shows a greater picture to people, a clearer picture, when multiple people are together unified over something together. We see that not only in music, we see that in sports. There's some great basketball, football players, but yet if they don't have a team, and we see people who try to win it all by themselves, and it usually doesn't work well. The truth is, if that person does not value the other people, then there usually is a divided team. There's usually anger among one another because they're forgetting their purpose. And God in his grace is reminding us through this passage of our purpose, of why he's called us together, why he's gifted us together. Because the power of God is shown more clearly in diversity that promotes unity than just individuals themselves. I think of what John 17 says, and this is a prayer of Jesus. And I think it's going to be on the screen behind me. It says this, that they may, he prays that we all may be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And this is the reason. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I find that interesting that Jesus prays for our unity so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so what I get out of this is the church is to be about testifying that Jesus is real and the gospel is necessary. And Jesus has equipped us to do that and that's why we have these gifts. But Paul encourages us not only with this reminder, but he also encourages us with the fact that we serve a victorious king. That's what we're going to move to in 8 through 10. And I, as I was studying this passage, I was like, where is he going with this? But the more I studied it, the more I read it, I was like, what? 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 This is incredible. And what he's saying is the conquest of Christ and his victory is the means by which he gives us the great power of God. Read with me again in verse 8. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now he quotes Psalm 68, one verse in the middle of Psalm 68. But I want you to, to know that when a Jew was hearing a passage, even a verse of Scripture, he wouldn't just think of that. Like, we kind of have these verses that we throw at people, and we kind of just take them out and we throw them at people and say, here, here's a verse, here's a verse, here's a verse. When they quoted a verse, they would think of the whole thing. They would think of Psalm 68. They would think of the entire message. For example, it would be like me saying, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. If I quote that, and you know that movie, you're now thinking of the struggle of Inigo Montoya against the six-fingered man. No spoiler. But he's seeking the whole movie to find this man. And he repeats this refrain over and over and over again. All I have to do, and we do it all the time. We can quote one part of a movie, and you then think of all these different things that are connected from that very movie. And you guys start talking about it like, that's what he's doing here. He's quoting one verse. One verse. But he's saying, look at this whole thing. But here's the example that I want you to see. And so I need to explain to you Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is the Davidic psalm. 
It is a prayer that the divine warrior will manifest his power, that he will strengthen his people, and that he will defeat the enemies of Israel. It traces the history of Israel from from Egypt and how God delivered them, how he led them through the wilderness, how he brought them to Sinai and showed up in power there and gave them the law. Then they're in the promised land, and it's reminding them of battles that they fought like in Judges, Random battles he's, he's reminded of, but eventually it gets to the story of David and David bringing the ark of God back into Jerusalem and celebrating. And you think of where David is dancing before the Lord with all his might. There was a giant celebration of God bringing his presence to dwell in Jerusalem, which was his original intention in dwelling with his people. But it's singing about how God saves his people from enemies, saves them from death. Women are singing and shouting and dividing the spoils of war. He's leading, God is leading his people in victory procession up to Mount Zion. And the conquered kings of the earth that God beat are the ones giving gifts of tribute to the victor. The whole world in the psalm, is called to worship the Lord, who is the one, I love this, who rides in the heavens. He rides in the heavens. And so the psalm calls us to bless God as the one who daily bears us up and is our salvation. But the psalm ends with this. It ends with a victorious victor giving us his power and strength to help his people in their battle. Look at Psalm 68, 35. It says, awesome is God from his sanctuary. The God of Israel, he is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Now that word, that that phrase, blessed be God, didn't we see that in Ephesians? He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And now Paul is telling you how Jesus got and was able to give us all of these blessings. Because he is the one who won the victory for his people. And so then he continues and he says this. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now here is an example of how Jesus expands their understanding of what happened in the past, in their history, and how he fulfilled in a greater way the promises and acts of God for his people. Because God won amazing victories in the past, is what Paul says. He says, I'm rehearsing for you all these amazing victories that God has done. And he gave them great power to continue to fight his enemies. Once David was there, they didn't finish fighting, they kept fighting. But Paul says, ah, but Jesus, Jesus won a greater victory. And so Jesus is able to give you greater power. I love that. You have to understand Ephesus too, steeped in the cult of the Greek pantheon. Their goddess was Artemis, a hunter, a strong warrior. And one of the things they would pray to her is that she would protect them from evil spirits. They were terrified of evil. I don't want to get into details of the things that I was reading about. It's crazy. 
I mean, the gods and goddesses that they believed would protect you from various things. There was one goddess who had three, you, you could have three heads, and they would usually face the streets. So if I had one here, it would face like here, that aisle, this aisle, and this aisle. And you would sacrifice a dog to her, and she would rid all the streets of evil beings. That's what they believed. Because they're looking for someone to save them from evil. And in Greek mythology, they often would come down. The gods would come down out of heaven. And so there's nothing really unique about him saying, oh, he, what does it mean that he ascended? But that he also descended. But when the gods came down, they would indwell people and they would change their, the people's appearance. So they, the people who were indwelt with the gods, they would become taller. They would become more handsome. They'd have beautiful hair, kind of like Corey's. Don't think of Glenn Karsten. It's not a good picture. Like He would want to be imbued with a god, so he had a beautiful Corey hair. Could you imagine? Glenn Karsten. Look at that guy. Just rub that later on. That's a beautiful thing in and of itself. But I look at it, I think he's, he's trying to help people see. Listen, you guys understand this. The Greeks who are there, you understand this. You understand of a god coming down. But the means by which they come down is actually to show their might by doing awesome things and making people bigger and stronger. And Paul goes, that's not what Jesus did. That's not what Jesus did at all. Look at how Jesus won. How, how did he win? He, he's the one who descended into the lower regions, the earth. Now this is a debatable, a debatable part right here. The lower parts. Some of yours might say the lower parts of the earth. As I studied this, it became a little clear to me that what he's talking about is not just death on a cross. I think of Philippians 2 talks about how he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And some people think that's what he's talking about, is that humiliation. The lower parts of the, the earth. This is where he's talking about. Others, and I think there's precedence to believe this one, others believe that he's talking about the afterlife. That when Jesus died, he went to Hades, or the Jewish understanding would have been Sheol. You see, Sheol is the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. And it was a place where all the dead went to. And these are things that characterize this place. It's a place of silence, of forgetting. It's a place of rest for some, but it's also a place of torment. Psalm 89 says this, What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Another psalm says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Isaiah says, For Sheol does not thank you. Death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. I think in the New Testament where it says, In Hades, the rich man went there, and in his torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Some people debate whether or not this is an actual story that Jesus is telling or if this is just a parable, if it's real or if it's a story. Either way, you have this this place of Hades of believers and non-believers. If I were to put it in Greco-Roman terms, it would be like Elysium, this place of rest for the dead. But then there's this place called Tartarus, which is evil, and it's a place of torment, Either way, Jesus even says to the thief on the cross, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The question is, where, where's paradise? Where is he talking about? 
I believe that Jesus died and awaited his resurrection in Sheol. He was not tormented. He was in, as he said to the thief, in paradise, or if you want to term it, Abraham's side. He was with those who knew him, like David and Moses and Abraham and all of those who died in faith, awaiting the fulfillment, as Hebrews 11 says. But I find this interesting that even in Jewish thought, there was, there was hope that was awaiting for the people in Sheol. Psalm 49 says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. He will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me. Job 19 says, I know that my Redeemer lives. He says, And in the end, I will stand on the earth after my skin has been destroyed. Yet I know that in the same flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. And he says, how my heart yearns within me for that. But even in Greek mythology, no one escaped Hades. In fact, they had a three-headed demon dog named Cerberus who guarded the gate. You can't leave. People could go in, but you're not coming out. That was the idea. And think of it like this. Death has always stood as our greatest enemy, didn't it? From the beginning. The day you eat of it, you will die. That's always been the thing that we have feared. That we have not known. Death is the great equalizer for everyone. But here's the crazy thing. When Jesus came, we know that he promised something outstanding, didn't he? I think of the story that Jesus tells, uh, or sorry, that happened to Jesus when Jesus is with Lazarus' sisters, Martha. He's talking to her, and he says to Martha, not to marry at this time, but he says to Martha, he goes, your brother will rise again. And she says, I, I know. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. It's, it's way at the end. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then he says, do you, do you believe this? You see, one of the missions of Jesus was to free us from the power of the devil. And his power was this, that he held us captive by the fear of death. Look at Hebrews 2. It says this, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. And he will free those who for all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And folks, how did he break it? Because he rose from the dead. He broke it because he can't stay dead. It's amazing to me because Jesus... And everything that he's done in Acts 2, that's the focal point of their message. Think of this. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He says, this Jesus, you saw this about him. But he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He says, you crucified and you killed him by the hands of lawless men. But get this. God raised him up. Why? Because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Not possible for him to be held by death. You talk about a victory. 
That's incredible. Everybody else is expecting Jesus would remain dead. Why? Because that's the truth that they've seen. He'll raise up on the last day, according to the Jews. The Greeks are like, he's not going anywhere. Nobody leaves this place. Three days. He's out of there. He's out of there in three days. I love that. And it says, and Peter continues in this message. He says, for he promised through David, you will not abandon my soul to Hades and you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And he says, brothers, I tell you with confidence, David, he's dead and buried. He is decaying. He is decaying. His tomb is with us to this day. But God used him as a prophet. And this is what he says. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. He was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not see corruption. And I love the fact that it's not just that he was raised from the dead that Paul focuses on. Because then he turns it and he points upward. He says, yeah, he descended to Hades. And he came down there and he conquered and he was victorious. But because of that, God turns him and puts him higher than everything else. And that's exactly how Acts 2 ends. He says, this Jesus, God raised him up. And of all of this, we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Therefore, let all Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you have crucified. It's not just the fact that he was raised, but that God exalted him above every single name that could ever be named. And that's exactly what he says in verse 10 of Ephesians 4. It says, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. It's not just that the divine warrior has conquered death in Hades. He also conquered the entire rest of Mount Olympus. He not only defeated Hades and Persephone or however you say her name and Cerberus the dog, whatever it is. He also destroyed Apollo and he killed Zeus and he destroyed Poseidon and he destroyed all of these gods that people were trusting in in Ephesus. He goes, he's greater than all of them. None of them are as awesome as Jesus. Don't follow them. Follow the one who's far above all the heavens. He's the one. And he did it through his death. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to fear what's going to happen by following Christ because he's greater than all the gods. There's nothing that will stand opposed to him. Didn't Jesus tell him that? He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We're going to go in there and we're going to snatch souls from death. No one's going to stay in there because I'm going to take them all that are mine out of there. And that's the church's mission. That's exactly what he's telling you. He says he is an exalted king. And guess what, church? We are on his side. And he's the one who's gifted us with power by the Spirit of God to be about the kingdom and the proclamation of the gospel. I love it in Colossians. It says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Think back, he says that he led a host of captives. You know who those captives are? 
It's every single demon that would ever stand opposed to him. Every single God. I think of how mighty. I, I, I love joking with my kids. My kids ask me, what's your favorite superhero? And I tell them, Jesus. And they look at me like, that's disappointing, Dad. And I said, but who else is better than Jesus? If Hulk is there, Jesus would disintegrate him. Who is better than Jesus? And they're like, okay, but really. And then they'll give me two options. And then I got to play their game. And I always choose the weaker one, which really frustrates them. Why do you like that guy? But either way, I think of Jesus. Think of all the Avengers and all the awesomeness. We want these, these gods and these awesome beings to come. And we see them with great power. And we're like, yes, that's amazing. And Jesus goes, I've given you way greater power because my spirit is in you. My spirit, the very spirit that raised me from the dead is in you, gifted you, empowering you day by day. So that as Psalm 68 says, he daily bears us up. And I love that. That is the battle that our Savior, our King has won. But I have to come back to this question, why did he give us these gifts? And it's the end of verse 10. So not only is he the one who ascended far above all the heavens, but notice the reason why he did this and why this happened to Jesus is so that he might fill all things. You see, God gives us power again to advance the kingdom of God. Think of after the resurrection, Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That king remains with us. In Acts 1.8, think of what he said to the disciples. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth because we are about that same mission that they are and we're about transferring people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom there's redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're called to do. Now with this in mind, I want us to read back parts of Ephesians that we've already studied. You're in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 1, 19 through 23. Look at what Paul, these are two prayers we're going to look at. Look at what Paul prays. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Does that sound like what we just talked about? Look at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14. This reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Why? That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
That is exactly what we just read, that he would fill all things, that we would know this power that he has granted us, and he's earned this power because he is the conquering king of the universe. I think of the glory of what he's asked us to be a part of. Do you pray for this power to fill you? Do you pray for people in this church and in this community, in this world, followers of Christ, to be filled with that power? He does. Because he understands that's exactly what we need. If we're going to be a unified force against our enemies who stand opposed to us, and it's not people, as Paul says. It's rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says that's who we're fighting against. Be united in that fight. We fight together through exactly what was prayed over us with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain that unity. Because that's exactly what we need. Paul says elsewhere in Philippians, he says, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So here's a question I ask. As we look at this, you've been gifted. So where are you using your gifts? You have giftings, and they're powerful. For you, for God's kingdom. Paul writes in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. So my first question is, where are you using them? But I also want to remind you that that's a problem of our modern-day church that we have to wrestle over is that too often we're preoccupied with Sunday mornings, aren't we? Well, I, I can't, everybody can't use their gifts on Sunday morning. Do you realize that the church is greater than Sunday morning? Do you realize that the church is under attack on Monday through Saturday as well? It's not just Sunday. It's not like Satan goes, oh, man, it's almost Monday. I can't do anything now. No, he's always against us. Hebrews reminds us daily to exhort one another so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need it daily. So we need to be using our gifts not just on Sunday, but more and more and more in the life of this church. Gifts were given for the edification of the body of Christ. And let me remind you of what we read in John 17. Our unity proclaims to people that Jesus is real. Proclaims that to people. That's a testimony to people. That Jesus is real. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 14 where they're using their gifts in such a manner that an unbeliever comes from outside and looks at what is happening and he says this. He falls down and worships God saying, God is really among you. Let me ask this. Is that true of your small group? Is that true if you go out, let's say for a meal with believers? Do you guys evidence that there's something particular particular and even powerful, about you guys getting together? Do we understand that that's our mission 24-7? We don't, we don't get to rest in this? And I think, God, help us to push forward with your power. Too often we think, oh, man, I, I'm really weak. Well, I got great news for you. Paul felt weak too, and he said, I glory in my weakness, because in that weakness, God's power is seen in me. I think, church, that's what we're about. So in conclusion, I want us to think of the reality of what Christ has done for us. He is a king 
who is worthy of every bit of glory that the world could offer him. There is not one thing that he does not desire to fill in this world. And we are a part of seeing the advancement of the kingdom of God on this earth until he returns. That is our task. And he's called us to do that together with the diversity of empowerment that he has so that the true power of God would be seen in us for his honor and his glory alone. That's what we're called to do. So let us pray and ask God to do that among us. Lord Jesus, your word is true. And Lord, I think of the reality of the prayer that you taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we want to admit that too often, Lord, we are distracted by things of this world. Lord, I pray that you would put in us power of your spirit to remind us, to draw us, to push us into greater devotion to you because you are that glorious to us. Lord, I can't help but think in the way that you did this. Your victory was not in a battle that was a bloody battlefield. Lord, those things will come later. But Lord, you came first and you won a victory by laying your life down, by serving with great humility. Lord, help us to live in that way too, to lovingly serve one another for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, not for ourselves, not to us, O Lord, we pray, but to your name be praise, for you are worthy of it, Lord Jesus. Thank you.